Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast. And as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. And welcome to A Million Other Choices. Once again, I am your host, Kim. Today is a story of two idiots, a massive deer's head, and messages from beyond the grave. This is the Klaus Family Murders. back in time, way back to the 1960s, when Gordon Douglas Klaus 
who was born and raised in the small farm town of Castor, Alberta, married his high school sweetheart, who was also from Castor, Sandra Norma Berry. Farming was a family tradition for the Clauses, and so they farmed side by side with Gordon's parents, Martha and John, until John's health took a bit of a turn in his later years, when both Sandra and Gordon took over the farm work completely, and also at the same time cared for his aging parents in their twilight years. Gordon was known as a bit of a prankster with a vibrant sense of humor who loved to fish and hunt, a man's man, but with a sense of humor. Sandra was herself the oldest of six siblings. She had been raised on a farm as well, close to a place called Big Knife Park. She was described as adventurous and fun-spirited. She and Gordon had dated throughout their high school years, and on March 19th, 1971, they had a baby daughter named Lisa Marie. So that was probably, it's hard to tell because it doesn't really say dates, but I'm thinking this was probably just sort of near the tail end of their high school years. They married on April 28th, 1972, so just after Lisa's first birthday. She worked initially for AGT as an operator and then went to work at the Alberta School Hospital in Red Deer. On May 29, 1973, they had another daughter named Monica Dale. Now, sadly, only five months later after Monica was born on Thanksgiving Day, Lisa Marie, who was three, um, was in a farming accident and died. After the death of Lisa, they moved to a, a different farm site about 140 kilometers east of Red Deer. Gordon and Sandra, and Sandra was always known as Sandy, were both very active parents, participating in a lot of school activities and curling. Sandy cooked meals for the hired farmhands while balancing parenting, farming, and caring for Gordon's parents. Once Monica got a little bit older, she started a job at the Rosary Hospital directly in Castor. Now, just so you know, all of this information comes from their obituaries, which was posted in the Stetler Independent, and that's a little bit important. It's also a little bit of a spoiler alert, because obits generally mean that the person is dead, but it's important, because I'm going to get to that in a minute. Monica was a mild-mannered woman who played a lot of sports in her youth, particularly baseball and figure skating. She graduated from Red Deer College as a paralegal and lived and worked in the town of Stetler, which you might remember Stetler from the Raymond Cook story. She was an avid golfer and would always attend the Big Valley Jamboree every year. She loved photography and deer hunting with her dad. And she, of course, helped out on the family farm a lot with things like calving, branding, and other farm stuff. She would often stay over at her parents on the weekends when she came into town to help on the farm. Um, she shared her dad's sense of humor and was described by friends and family as warm-hearted. So here is what's very interesting about those obituaries. And these obituaries are very detailed, by the way, lots of information in them. But you know what isn't in them? Any mention of who was their third child. So Gordon's obituary mentions no mention of a third child, just Lisa and Monica. Sandy's said that they had a darling daughter, Lisa Marie. In 1972, they married and moved to the Klaus family farm northeast of Castor. It wasn't long before they had two more children. Monica's obituary says she was the second oldest of three children belonging to Gordon and Sandy Klaus. 
That's a bit interesting. Normally, family and friends who write your obituary will mention all of your kids. I mean, don't they? Even if one has passed away like Lisa, I would hope that when I die, my friends would mention both of my kids. And of note, these obituaries were posted on the 11th of December 2013, which was only three days after they died. So clearly someone in the family or someone who wrote the obituary suspected that that this third child should be left out of the picture completely for some reason or another. If we go back two nights and three days to December 8th of 2013, the temperature was minus 26 degrees Celsius with a wind chill of minus 40. For those of you in Fahrenheit or in other places that don't get that cold, that is, well, it's fucking cold. There's really no other way to say it. So the farm where Gordon and Sandy lived and had raised their children was located in Castor, Alberta, which is a little tiny, tiny town best known for being a pit stop for migrating Canadian geese and ducks. In 2021, there were only 803 people living in the district in total. And I think I might have to take a road trip out there with Tim this summer because apparently there's this massive creek there where the, a lot, a ton of wildlife gather. And I really do like wildlife photography. It sounds like a really cool little town. It's got seven historical sites um, to visit, including an old train station. On this very cold morning, a fire broke out at 7.25 a.m. at the Klaus's farmhouse. As Castor only has 16 firefighters in total, they all made it there, made their way out to the farm on these icy and dicey roads. A neighbor had called the fire in, and with the size of the farms out there, to be able to see a fire on someone else's property, it had to be blazing pretty darn good. When they got there, the house was completely engulfed in flames and had pretty much burnt to the ground by that point. If anyone had been inside, it was clear that they were not going to be making it out alive. But fortunately, before they started putting the fire out with all the hoses and chemicals and whatnot, they noticed near the front door in the yard the family dog, which was a brown lab named Keela. And for any news media peeps out there, I think we need to start naming the family pets involved in these cases. I think that dogs and cats... And other pets deserve that respect, too, because um, I only found one article that actually named Keela, and the rest just referred to her as the family dog. Anyways, Keela was lying by the near the front door off to the side in the yard, dead from a single bullet wound with two empty shell casings nearby. And also near that door was a half-melted jerry can, which was later determined to be about a third full of aviation fuel, like jet fuel, I guess, um, which seems a bit excessive. So clearly this is arson, possibly murder. So the firefighters make the very smart decision to just let the fire burn itself out so that the water and the other chemicals won't contaminate what is clearly a crime scene. Also noted was that Gord's white 2003 GMC pickup truck was missing, But Gord and Sandy were known to be pretty early risers, and they should have been home at that time. So all of this brings me to that third child. It turns out that Gord and Sandy had a son. A son who was 39 years old and living on a trailer on the property, but 
pretty far from the farmhouse itself. Again, it's a very large farm. It's about 2,000 acres. So the trailer wasn't visible from the house. And in fact, was actually about a three-minute drive by car away from there. And this son's name was Jason. Jason got a call the morning of the fire from his friend Jeff. Jason was very distraught at the news because he knew his parents would have been home and Monica was there too. When Jeff asked where his parents were, Jason said, quote, They are there. They are in the house. They didn't go nowhere. And Monica was in there too. End quote. Now, Jason lived in the trailer, but he worked on the farm. He wasn't paid a salary, but he ate all his meals at the family home and was provided spending money by his parents. He lived in the trailer just sort of as a way of having a bit more privacy and kind of independence. But he was essentially supported financially by his parents. A six-foot-tall lumbering figure, he was regarded by some about town as a big-hearted old farm boy. Now, it's going to take about three days before the fire was declared burned out enough that arson and homicide detectives could go in and look for evidence. They brought in a police dog named Joby to sniff for human remains and accelerants. And they did find a few charred human remains, which were later determined to be that of 61-year-old Gordon Klaus and 40-year-old Monica Klaus. RCMP Major Crime Unit investigators believe the fire at the Claus residence in Castor on December 8, 2013 was set intentionally. Although the cause and origin is still under investigation, police can share that on December 13, the Calgary Medical Examiner's Office confirmed that the family dog that had been found deceased by first responders at the scene had suffered fatal gunshot wound. It is believed that the death of Gordon and Monica Klaus are as a result of a homicide, and today Sandra Klaus has not been located. Our investigation suggests that she was also the victim of a homicide. Sandra Klaus' remains have not yet been located. No remains of Sandra, who was 62 at the time, were ever found, but she was determined to have been home at the time of the fire, and her remains were completely burned up with the intense heat of the fire. Apparently, there was some coal in the basement of the farmhouse that they think contributed to making the fire burn particularly intensely. During this time, rumors were circulating a little bit about town, not in the family, but by people in the town, about Jason and his possible involvement in the fire. Jason, although he was initially supported as this big-hearted farm boy, was now there was a little bit of whispering that he might be a little bit of a bad seed. It was known that he partied and used cocaine um, and had been known to trade sexual favors for cocaine. Uh, it was also rumored that him and his dad argued a lot, and it was well known about town that the Klauses pretty much did financially support Jason, and he wasn't exactly the same kind of fine, upstanding citizen that Monica and his parents were. So for the police, Jason was a suspect pretty much right from the beginning. And naturally, he was brought in for questioning and was actually brought in. Now, this is two days after the fire. So this was before any of the human remains were found. And the only reason I'm thinking it's foul play is because of what was inside the house, which was a deer head of mine, that was worth a lot of money. Like we're talking around the two hundred thousand. Like it was a it was a real big big deer head. Like it was one of the biggest ones around. Like it was you know not far from the world record kind of deer head. 
And that's the only thing I can think of that somebody would come in to steal or try to steal. But I don't know if that stuff burns in the fire. I don't know if there'll be proof of antlers. I don't know. On one family hunting trip, Sandy had spotted a large buck and Jason had shot it and that deer head became a very prized possession. But I really question the $200,000 price tag Jason has on it. He apparently one time bragged that he had been offered $10,000 on a truck for it, but not $200,000. But then again, they aren't my particular decorating style, so I have no idea what the average deer head goes for these days. Jason was adamant that all three, uh, his mom, dad, and sister, had been in the house and had died in that fire. He also, interestingly, asked about shell casings, which other than the dog, there had not even been evidence of a murder at that point. And he asked on a couple of, he, and he asked a couple of times if any of the vehicles were missing. Gord's GMC Sierra was eventually recovered out near Battle River. And of course, there was this issue of this stupid deer head, which he felt certain was the motive for the killings. So he's not exactly helping himself look less suspicious. And from here, the story gets a little interesting. Jana Pruden from the Globe and Mail wrote a really great article on this case in August 2019 called Murder on the Prairies. It was later published in Reader's Digest, which is where I discovered it. And we all love Reader's Digest because, side note and mid-roll brag moment here, they voted me one of the top 10 Canadian crime podcasts of 2022. Anyways, according to Jana's article, Jason started telling people that he talked to Monica's ghost from the afterlife. These conversations, per se, were noted in the court sentencing documents, so we know that it's true. At least that he told people that. Not that the courts had determined that Monica was actually speaking from the grave. According to Jason, Monica told him exactly what had happened to her and her parents. Now, I'm not mocking a belief in ghosts or in the afterlife. I am actually a strong believer in the paranormal, um, but I'm also a realist, so I know that sometimes it's just bullshit. And Jason's ghost story smells like bullshit. A couple of weeks after the fire, Jason attended with fire investigator Keith Janes to the scene and was looking around. Jason pointed to something that he thought might be a tooth. And he told Keith that he knew exactly what had happened, that Monica had told them that they had been shot by a 9mm handgun and then the house had been set on fire with aviation fuel that they used for their ATVs. He told a lot of people these stories, and each time the story was a little bit different, of course. Naturally, Keith called the RCMP after this discussion because ghosts or not, he seemed to know a lot about the murders that someone who wasn't there wouldn't have known. And it turns out that other people had also reported these conversations from the spirit world to the RCMP. Another call had come in from Brady Flett, who was Monica's boss at Vortex, where she, she had worked. He had stayed in touch with Jason after the murders, and he had even helped him financially to help with some of the funeral arrangements and such. And not just $20 here and there, but like $10,000 help. And not long after this payment, Jason called him again to ask for more money and told him that Monica had come to him telling him that his friend, that Jason's friend, Joshua Frank, had committed the murders. Oh, and apparently Monica didn't just talk to him. She sent him text messages. 
but alas, she always deleted them after he had read them. Must be a ghost thing. That story actually reminds me of, if you've ever watched that show Ghosts on TV, with uh, Trevor the ghost trying to type on the keyboard. Anyways, if you haven't watched that show, it's really cute. Sorry, again, sidetracked. Anyways, Brady, of course, tells Jason that he should go to the police with this information. But Jason says no, that Josh is a bad guy and would twist it to make it look like he was involved and that he'd wind up going to jail. It's funny, I don't have any friends in my life that I think are bad guys. But not everyone was convinced Jason was a liar. Sandy's mom had reportedly been a medium, and a lot of the close family members believed in the spirit world, so it wasn't an unlikely story to them. It seemed more unlikely that Jason could have been involved at all. But by this point, Sergeant Rob Krop, who was the first officer that interviewed Jason, was getting a bit fed up and pretty sure that Jason knew a lot of this kind of unknowable information, not from Monica's ghost, but from Jason himself. Did you kill Gord, Sandy, Monica Close? No, I did not. And I would not be taking a lie detector test, and I, would not, I did not kill them. I did not start the fire. I don't know how they got killed or murdered or anything else. Should I believe you? I would hope you would believe me. Yes, you should believe me. Yes. If there's someone to accuse me of that, uh, it doesn't make me mad. It, it doesn't make me sad. It just, it, it hurts. It, you know, it would it really, no. And, and the reporter asked me that too. And no, had nothing to do with this fire or whatever, however they died being murdered, being stabbed, being whatever they were. I don't know. I don't know how they died yet. I don't know if they felt the fire. I don't know. Give me one reason why I should believe you. One reason to believe me because I lived for that family farm. Okay? I've been there 38 years on that farm. Had breakfast, dinner, supper. Yeah, Dad and I would bunt heads once in a while. Mom and I would bunt heads once in a while. Monica and I, she always looked out for my girlfriend. She would never want, like any of my girlfriends. But there was never a time where I would not want them in my life uh, for any reason. Like that, that... Uh, I know that's a question you have to ask me, but... Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Jason, if what you just told me right now is the um, truth, if what you just told me is the truth... Could you... Could you... Okay, go ahead. You have nothing to worry about. Could you kill your parents? If what you told me is the truth, you have nothing to worry about. I don't have so nothing to worry about. I don't. So the RCMP have Brady wear a wire and try and get some of this information that these ghosts are telling Jason himself. Man, there's Monica's talk to you. Your dad has talked to you. 
Did this guy go with the intent to kill your family? He had a gun, or was it a gun that you that he got from your house? Oh no, it was his own. Uh, he did go there with intent, but I think he went there just to make sure he was going to get away with that deer. The RCMP decide that the time has come to bring in Mr. Big and try to capitalize on Jason's love of mooching off of others and partying. Commence Operation Contingent. At this time, Josh has already been questioned and passed a polygraph, so they're just after Jason for the murders. As you know, Mr. Big Stings come up in pretty much every second episode here. And for those of you that wonder how admissible in courts these confessions are, the Supreme Court of Canada on July 31st, 2014 in R.V. Hart, which is a case I'm going to probably cover at some point, because when I was reading that case about the Mr. Big Stings, I thought it sounded really interesting. They created this new framework or guidelines governing how courts determine the admissibility of any confession that's obtained in the course of Mr. Big operation. So this framework or guidelines is intended to address three major concerns that come along with these Mr. Big operations. One is unreliable confessions. So that's where um, the person just wants to be part of this organization, this crime organization and so they make a false confession Uh, Two, the introduction of bad character evidence that's like well if you're willing to be in a crime organization in the first place then it's not unlikely that you would kill somebody and three the risk of abusive abusive investigations so under this heart framework any confession that police get from the accused in these mr big stings is presumptively right off the top inadmissible But in order to be admissible, the Crown or the prosecutor must establish that the value of the evidence that they've gotten outweighs its prejudicial effect. Um, And a lot of times that comes from that holdback evidence that they keep, that is things that they're confessing to things that only the person that killed the person could have known. And the Mr. Big operation, as it's done, cannot constitute an abusive process. And then, of course, the court also has to consider whether or not Mr. Big's time and discussions with the target um, had any elements of coerciveness in it. So kind of no, but kind of yes. But we've seen a lot of times they they are deemed to be admissible and they are actually upheld on appeal. And they have been, I mean, they've been doing these for well over 350 of them that have been successful. The Mr. Big Stings are really complex, but by now you know the basics of them. Mr. Big is a crime boss. He offers you money for doing pretty much nothing, but he needs to trust you. Uh, He needs all the details of anything that you've done to make sure that there aren't any loose ends. I just hope that they don't actually call the guy Mr. Big because someone out there is going to listen to a podcast somewhere and never trust anyone named Mr. Big. So, But I'm assuming that they use other names for this Mr. Big. They're just always referred to in the court documents as Mr. Big. So here is how this particular project contingent went down. It started on April 1st, 2014 and lasted only three and a half months. 
In it, we have, there's Constable A, Constable B, Constable C, uh, and of course, Mr. Big. Constable A later testified that this was the shortest operation that he had ever been involved in because of how quickly um, Jason wound up confessing to his part in the uh, death of his parents and sister. Uh, of course, this was all before douche canoe Robert Leeming did his five-hour Mr. Big sting. So on April 1st, 2014, Mr. Big and Constable B go out to the Klaus's farm, which is where Jason was staying, and wanting to store a vehicle. In exchange for that, um, he was to be paid $2,500 a month, and that was for two months. So that is how they first established a relationship with Jason. Over the three months of the investigation, Jason became very friendly with Constable B, who was sharing with him some of the details of the bad things that he'd done in his past, like how he had once killed his fiance, which of course didn't actually happen, but Jason obviously likes having friends that are bad guys. So I guess this appealed to him. So Constable B kind of butters Jason up saying he has a lot of respect for him, really liked him, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and he should become a member of this organization. Uh, but of course this organization demands complete loyalty and honesty. So the organization allowed Jason to participate in some phony illegal activities, things like collecting debts, blackmailing a border guard, setting up false alibis, etc. And at each opportunity, Jason was happy to participate. And in the end, he was paid a total of $12,340, 5000 of which was for the storage of vehicles. And the rest was for what Jason believed were illegal activities. Not bad for three months' work, but don't get any ideas about a career change just yet. To show Jason what happened to members who were not honest, he was conveniently in attendance when one member was supposedly fired from the organization, and when they tried to enforce a debt from Constable C, who was also an undercover officer, uh, in which Jason actually took his wallet, and then once witnessed Constable B completely lose it on a guy that had parked too close to him, who was also hopefully an undercover guy, because Constable B used racial slurs and smashed his window in with a tire iron. And then around the end of May, Jason was there when Constable B and Constable C met up with this other guy who supposedly beat up a prostitute. The prostitute was actually an undercover officer and had been kind of made up to look beaten up and was in the trunk of this guy's car. Constable C took the sex worker slash undercover officer away in his car and Jason and Constable B were charged with cleaning up the mess. So on June 2nd, Jason and this Constable B were getting ready to drive out to Regina to set up this phony alibi for this prostitute beater. And on the way there, they stopped in Medicine Hat, stayed at a hotel, and that is where Jason confessed that he had arranged with Josh to kill his parents and his sister. He told Constable B that he had planned the murders, but that it was Joshua Frank that had actually done it. Now, Constable B knew that Joshua had already been questioned and had passed a polygraph, so he figured Jason was lying just to cover up his own involvement in it. A few days later, on June 11th, Jason texted Constable B and took back the confession and then ensued 
a little bit of an argument where Constable B said that it was all because Jason's girlfriend, Wendy, had been telling Jason not to trust these new friends of his because they could be police officers. As a result of the exchange of these text messages, it's the heat's getting a little hot there, so Constable B decided to pull back from his involvement and have this Constable C get a little bit more involved. So on June 12th, Constable C goes out to the Klaus family farm and sees that they're getting ready for the sale of the farm. So he tries to sort of smooth over this sort of tarnished relationship and told Jason that they're going to take a trip out. A few of them are taking a trip out to Vancouver the next day and that he was invited. Jason was really excited about this trip, um, but he wasn't able to go because he had broken his ankle the day before or earlier that day or something. So instead, Mr. Big and Constable C told Jason that Mr. Big's uncle was dying in the hospital and that because Jason was such a valued member of the organization, Mr. Big himself was going to arrange for his uncle to confess to the murders before he died as a dying declaration. But in order to do that and to convince the police that it was a true confession, he had to know everything. So Jason went to Joshua and told him that he had arranged for someone who could take care of their little problem, but that Josh had to tell them all of the details. On July 19th, Jason met with Mr. Big and Constable C. They were in Calgary with a, sort of a bunch of other members of this organized crime unit. And he was told that the, the whole purpose of having this meeting was that somebody was getting inducted as a full-time member. So Jason, of course, is excited, thinking it's going to be him turns out it's not it's somebody else so he gets jealous of this and then tells Mr. Big about his planning of the murders and that Josh would co cooperate his story so they arranged a meeting at Cross Iron Mills in Airdrie which is a big mall for any of you non-Calgarians at this meeting Josh met with Mr. Big alone in Mr. Big's truck he's got some issues and I'm I can Okay. I don't, I don't believe in pissing around. I'm a good guy. He'll vouch for me. Yep. I didn't know about you at all. Uh, I've got a way to help him out. I, he's he's met me out. I don't know if he's told you. I've got an uncle dying of cancer. Okay. He's, Sorry to hear that. But he, <laughs> he ran pretty long and hard yeah. his whole life. He's got a granddaughter. And he's got not much. So somehow... Like if the granddaughter was able to, be, you know, a little help. But that's beside the point. I told him exactly what happened, so that's all. Because you know, that's you know, I know how we planned it. Remember how we did everything? Yeah. yeah. So nobody so, lies to me, and I nope. get everything right. You okay. ask him whatever. You take, you go over there and have to talk to the book. Jump up. Okay. The sooner we get this yeah. done, the better. Yeah. No, I agree, buddy. Josh. Yeah. Okay. Just like Todd. Todd. Yes. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Okay. And you can, if, and if you don't like anything I'm asking to you, there's the door handle. You can fuck off anytime. And I got a question. I am dying. I am dying to ask you after what he told me, okay? Okay. And I'll tell you when it's coming because you're going to die laughing when it's coming, okay? Okay. The deal is mom, pop, sister, God. Yeah. Tell me about it. Well, went into the house. No, no. Start start back how it came about so okay. I can get it through to Matt. Because I'll explain to you after. But that, uh, there's a reason for my asking, like, to start right at the very beginning. Yeah. Because... I just want to... I'll put it this way. If I said to you, if I said to you that, uh, 
Goldilocks woke up and the bed wasn't right and she ran out. You'd go, what the fuck are you talking about? But if I started the story at the beginning of her walking through the woods, then I can relay that to Uncle. That's how it goes, okay? Okay. So, uh, this whole thing happened in February. December. Or December. December, you're right. Do you remember the date? December 8th. He uh, proposed this to me to uh, go in and take out the family. How did he say it to you? He said that he was, um, he had been uh, writing some checks on the farm in California, his dad's signature, and he was looking into buying some cattle. So he was going to be uncovered right away and cut out of everything on the farm. So he kind of had to, they had to go away. After he pro- proposed this to me, he said, well, if you pack out, if you back out, be watching over your back because there might be a bullet coming your way. Which, Did you think he was serious? You never know. You never know. Did you take it as an actual threat from him? No, I didn't take it as an actual threat. I'm going to do this. It's just, yeah, it's always a possibility. Yeah. So I went in, let the dog out, went into the mom and dad's room, took care of them, sister's room, and I went back and did all three again just to make sure. Flipped the light on. You flipped the light on? Oh, yeah. I didn't oh, want to yeah, miss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't want to. Did anybody wake up? Uh, Monica, after the first two shots, but she didn't even have time to get out of bed because it was boom, boom. And I didn't want them to know what hit them. Like, oh. I'm, not, I'm not a fucking animal. No. Well, I guess I kind of am now. Found the half gas in the garage where he told me it would be. Started the fire. Had to shoot the dog because the dog was coming at me when I lit the fire. In hindsight, I probably should have thrown it into the house, but it's 50-20-20 hindsight, right? Mm. So at this point, I had the truck running, and then I just popped out my same tracks into the truck. Met Jason, got dropped off. Okay, yeah. you uh, ready for my question? Yeah. How did you pass the lie detector test? Well, I figured out that the fidget butt pad that you sit on, when you took as they ask you 10 questions, two of them are truth, three of them are predetermined that you're going to lie to these questions, and then a couple of them are about the case. So they'd ask you your two truth questions, the case questions, and then the questions that you're supposed to lie to them to, and I just gave an extra fidget with my ass on the butt pad. It's a fight or flight response, the guy told me. When your body goes to lie, it's a natural thing. <laughs> How did you learn this? I just figured it out while I was sitting there. Really? Yeah. And then how did, you, how did you light it up? I had a torch lighter. I've still got the lighter, actually. Yeah. Where's it at? It's in my truck. I've got it here. Do you? Do you understand how I can help you, like you understand. And I've never asked you for nothing. Nope. I'm not making you any promises. Yeah. What made you want to talk, like just talk to me freely like this? Well, if you're trying to help Jane, if it helps Jane, it helps me. Okay. Have you ever killed anybody else in your life? No. Nope. Never? Never. You've got balls of steel, my friend. Thank you, sir. <laughs> So would it be safe to say you're a stone-cold killer? I guess. <laughs> Do you feel remorseful? A little bit. Just a little? Yeah. Do you think they got what they deserved? I know Gordon did. I think Sandy didn't, but... And, and you, it was all over because uh, Jason told you 
he had wrote checks, forged his signature, and it was going to come out. And then he was scared he's going to be cut out. Plus, they were, I think they were talking to cut him right out of the farm. After this, Constable C and Constable B get into the truck, and Josh directs all of them out to Battle River and shows them where he had thrown the keys to the white GMC truck and the gun, which they were able to locate and recover. Oh, and for good measure, he told them that he still had the lighter that he had used to light the fire. Not surprisingly, Jason Klaus and Joshua Frank were both convicted of three counts each of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with eligibility for parole in 25 years. Of course, these were concurrent sentences because Justice Eric Macklin felt that rehabilitation requires a bit of hope that they could possibly be free one day. He said that consecutive sentences would be crushing, would be a crushing sentence and unduly long. During the trial, both of them blamed each other and neither took any responsibility. In victim impact statements, Jason's aunt Marilyn said, Jason is also dead to me. The whole family is gone. My hatred is immeasurable. His cousin, Nicole Thompson said, you are not worthy of the Klaus name. May God have mercy on you two depraved souls. To forgive you would be to sully their worth, and I will never forgive this. Jason and Joshua, of course, both appealed their sentences. And that turned out to be a little bit of a mistake, because the Court of Appeals said, quote, The evidence inclines away from the possibility that they would ever be rehabilitated. There is certainly no evidence that they would be rehabilitated. In the end, we are persuaded that some that the crimes of Klaus and Frank are not adequately represented in terms of proportionality and are not adequately denounced by not distinguishing the killings of Klaus's sister, which was an intentional extension to the main scheme. So, they each got another 25 years added to their parole eligibility. And I wrote a little LOL here in my notes. The missing deer head was never located. According to Jana's article in the Globe and Mail, Jason used to tell people that it was probably burned in the fire. But apparently he has since changed that to it's in the trunk of an abandoned vehicle somewhere outside of Castor, which is maybe just another reason for a road trip, methinks. I wonder what it's actually really worth. And if you can sell a deer head you find in the trunk of an abandoned vehicle. Do finders keepers apply here? Anywho, Jason Klaus will be 92 before he can be considered for release, and Joshua Frank will be 82. And that was the Klaus family murders. If you are particularly interested in this case, Christy Lee of Canadian True Crime does a three-parter on it. I haven't listened to it myself because I don't like to do that when I'm doing a case, but it's Christy Lee, so I'm sure it's well done, very detailed. I thought this story was going to actually be a bit, a little bit of a dud uh, on the surface. It just didn't seem that interesting to me, but I'm really glad I dug into it because it was actually a really interesting story to research. I really hope that you're going to join me again next week for another case. I'm sorry that there weren't any real ghosts in this story. I do love a good ghost story. Speaking of which, if you haven't listened to it yet, the podcast, Very Scary People About the Amityville Horror, 
It's both an in-depth into the murder of the DeFeo family and then the mystery of the hauntings that followed 112 Ocean Avenue. It's hosted by Donnie Wahlberg, of all people, but it's really well done. As always, thank you so much for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.